From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. In September 2000, Sheila Toomey, a reporter for the Anchorage Daily News, wrote a front-page story about six unsolved homicides in Anchorage. The article displayed the photos of the six victims. All were women. Five were Native Alaskan, and one was African American. Nothing connected the victims, and police did not know if they were looking for one, two, or six murderers. Serial killer Joshua Wade eventually admitted that he murdered Della Brown, the last murder victim profiled in Toomey's article. Investigators believed Wade might have also killed some of the other victims. The police also found the murderer of Cynthia Henry, but the murders of the other four women listed in the article remained unsolved. One of these women was Genevieve Tetpon. Police initially thought they were on the right path to solving Genevieve's murder, but they hit a dead end and had nowhere else to turn. Finally, in 2009, a new cold case detective looked at Genevieve's file, and what he found turned the case on its head. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. In 2000, Genevieve Tepon was a 28-year-old single mother with four kids. Genevieve, or Jenny as her friends and family called her, was half Yupik and half Athabascan. She had strong ties to her mother, siblings, and cousins, but she could not find a man who would treat her right. The father of her first child ignored Jenny and her baby after she gave birth at age 18. She stayed with her husband long enough to have three more children, but their marriage dissolved. In early 2000, Jenny got engaged to Ken Gessler, but she told her cousin that Ken was not a nice man and Jenny's mother thought Gessler treated Jenny poorly. When Jenny learned Gessler was having an affair, she moved out of his apartment, and her mother helped her move into a new apartment. Her mother was relieved when Jenny told her she was through with Ken and ready to start a new life. Jenny's mother volunteered to take the kids for a few days while Jenny settled into her new home. On March 22, 2000, a delivery driver motoring down secluded Arctic Valley Road near Anchorage noticed some objects tossed off the steep bank along the side of the road. Snow covered the ground, but there were no footprints in the snow. The driver saw a sleeping bag and some bags of garbage, so he climbed down the steep bank to investigate. When he unwrapped the sleeping bag, he uncovered the body of a woman who had been stabbed in the torso numerous times. He quickly called the police, and homicide detectives responded to the scene. There was no doubt that someone had brutally murdered the young woman in the sleeping bag. 
The medical examiner counted at least 30 stab wounds. Most of the wounds pierced her abdomen, but she fought her attacker and suffered numerous deep defensive injuries. The young woman wanted to live, and she put up a brave fight. Because no footprints led down through the snow to the body, authorities concluded that two individuals swung the sleeping bag off the side of the road. The medical examiner fingerprinted the victim and positively identified her as Genevieve Tetpon. Under Jenny's fingernails, the ME collected foreign DNA. Analysts prepared a DNA profile, but they found no match in CODIS, the Federal Combined DNA Index System for Criminals. Although the DNA did not immediately point authorities to the murderer, the detectives knew it could prove valuable in pinning down a likely suspect. The number of stab wounds suggested overkill by someone who knew Genevieve. Since 80 to 90 percent of all homicides are perpetrated by someone close to the victim, the police examined Jenny's life and acquaintances. The two men who had fathered her children seemed like unlikely suspects, but her fiancé, Ken Gessler, warranted further investigation. According to Gessler's roommate, Ken and Jenny had an intense argument not long before Jenny disappeared. When detectives went to Gessler's current girlfriend's apartment to talk to him, he bolted out the back door. The police chased him, but he disappeared, and the authorities could not find him. His actions made him appear guilty, and detectives began to think he was Genevieve's killer. In Gessler's apartment, investigators found sleeping bags similar to the one the killer had wrapped around Jenny's body. When the detectives examined the bags, they discovered blood stains in one of them. Lab tests later confirmed that the blood belonged to Genevieve Tepon. When detectives first recovered Jenny's body in the sleeping bag, they noted several trash bags at the scene, and they concluded that Jenny and the trash bags were thrown over the side of the road at the same time. Could the trash provide a clue to the killer? The trash contained emails and credit card receipts belonging to a woman named Amy Torian. When investigators went to Torian's house to interview her and her husband, they found the pair unlikely murderers. Amy Torian worked for the Anchorage School District, and her husband was a retired Air Force officer and a pastor. The Torians had two children. The oldest was away at college, and their youngest son, Derek, was a 17-year-old high school senior. No one in the family had an obvious connection to Genevieve Tetpon. Amy explained that someone broke into her car several months earlier, and she reported the break-in to the police. She assumed the thief grabbed the garbage bags along with the other things he stole. Detectives agreed with her analysis, and they began to search in earnest for the person who had vandalized Amy Torian's car. Unfortunately, too much time had passed, and they gathered no leads. Meanwhile, the search for Jenny's fiancé, Ken Gessler, continued. Gessler evaded the police for five months, but then he made a mistake. He got into a fight in a bar, and when police arrested him, they learned he was wanted in connection with the homicide investigation. Detectives felt confident they finally had their man. Gessler claimed he did not kill Genevieve. The police asked him why he ran if he was innocent. 
He said he'd been involved in a hit-and-run accident about the same time Jenny disappeared, and he was driving without a driver's license at the time. When the police arrived at his girlfriend's apartment, he panicked and ran. Detectives asked Gessler about the blood in the sleeping bag at his apartment, and he said he and Jenny were camping when Jenny had her period. According to Gessler, the stain in the sleeping bag was Jenny's menstrual blood. Detectives found Gessler credible, but they collected his DNA and waited to see if it matched the profile from the DNA collected from under Jenny's fingernails. When the results indicated Gessler's DNA did not match the profile of the murderer, the police excluded Gessler as a suspect, and they began to wonder, did a serial killer murder Genevieve Tetpon? After all, six women had recently been murdered. Maybe they were all victims of the same man. The case of the murder of Genevieve Tetpon went cold. Let me take a break for a moment. The audiobook of my novel, Carlic Bones, is now available. This is an excerpt from the audio version read by Beth Chaplin. I curled into a ball in my sleeping bag, and I thought I heard someone call my name. I must have fallen asleep again and started dreaming. A few minutes later, I again heard a male voice yell my name. The voice sounded closer, but I couldn't identify it. I crawled from my bag and pulled on my extra tough boots. I unzipped my tent flap, climbed through the opening, and stood alert. After a few minutes, I heard breaking brush. Did Jeff fly out here to check on me? I remembered the plane landing earlier, but the man who'd called my name didn't sound like Jeff. A man walked out of the brush fifty yards in front of me. I'd never seen him before. Are you Jane? Yes, I said. The man was probably in his late sixties or early seventies, but he looked thin and fit. As he neared me, I saw the smile on his face. He seemed friendly, but I felt vulnerable. I'd left my rifle in my tent and now considered scrambling back into the tent to grab it. Instead of following my instincts, though, I stood motionless and watched the man advance. When he got within thirty yards of me, he lifted what I'd thought was a sturdy walking stick and pointed the end of it at me. Stay right there, he said, and leveled the rifle at my stomach. My heart slammed in my chest. Who is this guy? Do you know who I am? he asked, as if reading my mind. This audiobook of Carlic Bones is available on audible.com or at amazon.com. Check the show notes for a link. As a promo, I have 25 free audiobooks available. If you would like a free book, send me an email and I will send you the code. This is first come, first serve, so email me as soon as possible. You can find my contact information in the show notes. Fast forward eight years to January 2009, when Detective Dave Cordy was assigned to take a fresh look at the Genevieve Tetpon murder case. Cordy reviewed the dead ends encountered in the original investigation, but he found nothing new. 
He decided to take a closer look at the trash in the garbage bags, and he began to examine the emails and receipts. His hunch paid off, and he discovered something interesting. One of the emails and one of the credit card bills were dated after the thief broke into Amy Torian's car. The items bore dates in March 2000, and Amy Torian reported the break-in of her car in January 2000. The trash could not have been tossed off the side of the road by the thief. All along, the investigators believed the trash and Jenny's body were discarded simultaneously because they were found together. Cordy agreed with his assessment and thought the garbage might be the key to finding Jenny's killer. He decided it was time to take another look at the Torian family. Cordy first interviewed Amy Torian's husband, Arthur. He seemed truthful, and he willingly offered a DNA sample. The investigators found no match when they compared Arthur's DNA sample to the DNA collected from under Jenny's fingernails. The Torians had two sons. The oldest had been away at college at the time of Jenny's murder, but the youngest son, Derek, had been 17 years old. He'd been a high school senior who lived with his parents. Derek was now 27 years old and the father of two children. He coached football at a local Anchorage high school. When the police questioned Derek, he said he had nothing to do with the murder of Genevieve Tetpon. When detectives asked him if he would give a DNA sample, he hesitated a moment and then refused. He said he needed to contact his mother about providing a sample, and he said she would be upset if he gave it. The investigators found it odd not only that Derek refused to provide a DNA sample, but also that he needed to get his mother's permission to give the sample. Derek Torian was an adult and the father of two children. Why would he need to get his mother's consent to give his DNA to the detectives? The investigators obtained a search warrant for Derek's DNA, and it was a match to the DNA from under Jenny's fingernails. His DNA also matched a sample collected from one of the zipper poles on the sleeping bag. When detectives arrived at Derek's house to arrest him, they learned he'd left the state. After reviewing airplane manifests, the investigators tracked him to Spearfish, South Dakota, where he was working in a restaurant. The police thought it was suspicious that Derek quit his job as a football coach and took a job washing dishes in a restaurant in South Dakota. They arrested Derek and extradited him to Alaska, where prosecutors charged him with first-degree murder. The detectives offered Derek the opportunity to take a polygraph test, and Derek took the polygraph and failed. He decided to confess to being involved in Jenny's murder. But the detectives did not believe the story he told. Derek said he worked at a pizza parlor when he was in high school. He was closing the restaurant one night, and he and his friend, Louis de Jesus, were processing cocaine that they sold out of the pizza parlor. Jenny did not realize the restaurant was closed and walked in the door hoping to buy a pizza. When she saw what Torian and DeJesus were doing, the boys panicked. Derek was worried Jenny would report them, and he would lose his college scholarship. He said he told DeJesus to get rid of Jenny, and then he went into the office. Derek said he heard DeJesus and Jenny struggling in the restaurant, 
When Torian returned, he saw Jenny lying dead with multiple stab wounds. De Jesus was standing behind her body, holding a bloody knife. Torian said they put Jenny in a sleeping bag and disposed of her body. Derek Torian insisted it was Louis de Jesus who murdered Jenny. But if Torian had nothing to do with her murder, why was his DNA under her fingernails? Louis de Jesus, unfortunately, could not give his version of events because he was murdered in 2002. The detectives believed that Derek Torian brutally stabbed and murdered Genevieve Tetpon and then threw her away with the trash. Prosecutors knew they had a problem, though. No one could dispute Torian's version of events, and according to him, he was not even in the room when de Jesus murdered Jenny. The prosecutors were concerned they might lose the case if it went to trial, so they allowed Torian to make a plea agreement to manslaughter. The judge sentenced him to 15 years in prison. Detective Cordy won the Detective of the Year Award in 2009 for developing a lead in this case by carefully examining the credit card bills and emails from the trash bags found near Jenny's body and realizing some of the items did not match the previously established timeline. A slight discrepancy in dates pumped life into the investigation and sent it in a new direction. Genevieve Tepon's family finally knew the terrible truth about what had happened to their loved one. But so many families never have an answer. As of March 2021, records showed 80 unsolved homicides of indigenous women and girls in Alaska. Another 149 are listed as missing. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my patrons for your support. I recently started a group for this podcast on Facebook and would love to have you join it and chat with me and the other group members. Search Facebook groups for Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. You can also find a link to the group in the show notes. I'll be back soon with another edition of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.